0: Hey guys, welcome back. I hope you had a great weekend. Today, we're going to be talking about pyometras. And I know a lot of people are like, well, I know so much about pyometras. We do this every day, all the time. But I guarantee there's probably going to be some stuff in here that you didn't know about. So I hope you enjoy. All right, so let's talk about what a pyometra is first. So pyo means pus, and then mitra means uterus. So that's how we get the meaning of a pus-filled uterus, Pyometra. So who can get this? Usually this is going to be dogs and cats that are intact. So dogs and cats that have not been spayed. And lots of other species can get this too. I mean, it can definitely be like all kinds of species that get this, but we're just going to focus on just dogs and cats for today. It's usually going to be our older females that get this, like typically seven years and up, but it can happen at any age. The youngest one I've seen so far has been a nine-month-old. You have to remember they actually do have to go into heat for them to be able to have this. So it's not going to be for dogs who are like four months old or two months old because the as you'll see later, um, hormones play a big part in this. And if they're not sexually mature yet, then those hormones aren't going to be present to help cause this pyometra. Older patients, though, they've usually been through multiple heat cycles, and that means they have a bunch of hormones called progesterone, which usually are starting to basically accumulate into the uterus. And as you see later, this is part of the problem as to why our older patients get this and not our younger patients. All right. How does that pus get there? I mean, we don't have pus that's like injected into the uterus, right? So how does this pus actually get there? This is usually caused by bacteria. So the most common bacteria is going to be E. coli. You can also have other bacterias called like Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, Pseudomonas, and Proteus that can be seen in there as well. But here's the thing. The uterus is usually very sterile. There's nothing in there. You have a, your little sphincter, the, the cervix, that stops bacteria from going up in there usually, but the vagina has a large amount of normal bacteria. It's there to help protect it. So most of the time we think of the bacteria coming from diarrhea from that drips from like the anus down into the vagina. It can be from mating. So the male actually has lots of bacteria on their penis. They mate and then that goes into the vagina. But it can also just be from things like a urinary tract infection that goes, you know, the, the bladder and... Um, the reproductive system are very closely related to their their proximity. And so you can definitely get bacteria that goes from the bladder into the uterus, or you get this just because of the vulva and vagina having normal bacteria that's there. So typically when a female goes into heat, the uterus swells up to kind of prepare for a pregnancy. We have lots of blood supply that's going in there. And this makes an ideal place for bacteria to want to go. So it'll go or it'll ascend from the vagina into the uterus. Progesterone also helps promote like endometrial growth, meaning the inside of that uterus, it wants to grow. That's what progesterone helps it do. It also helps that uterus to produce more glandular secretions. There's more like fluid that's accumulating into the uterus, which bacteria loves. Bacteria loves fluid. And progesterone also decreases what's called myometrial activity, meaning that the uterus is usually almost like contracting. The uterus has a muscle to it. Like that's how it pushes the baby out, right? So it, it stops the contractions so that that way sperm doesn't get contracted out, Bacteria isn't getting contracted out. A baby is not getting contracted out. So, progesterone is basically trying to make this whole uterus ready to go for a baby to live in there. But that also makes it ready to go for bacteria to want to live in there as well. So, the immune system then responds with a bunch of white blood cells that goes into the uterus. We have these white blood cells and the bacteria basically fighting each other off inside the uterus, which is also killing off some of the cells of the uterus. Now we have dead tissue, bacteria, and white blood cells all combining, and that is what's going to make our pus that lives in there. This usually happens about four to eight weeks after they've gone into heat. And that that's hard because sometimes it'll be like even a couple weeks, two weeks. It could be longer than that. But in general, the average time is about four to eight weeks after they've actually gone into heat. Now, my next question would be, so if pus stays in the uterus, it's like a very contained area, then how is this going to make them sick? So that bacteria starts creating a bunch of toxins, and those toxins can leak across the walls of the uterus into the bloodstream. Now all those toxics are in the bloodstream, and think about where the blood goes. It goes in everywhere, right? So that means all of these toxins have now have like a highway access or freeway access to everything. That bloodstream goes to all the organs. It can wreak havoc on all of the body systems. Um, and it can cause them to go into sepsis as well, where we have a bunch of bacteria that's in the bloodstream. Now, what kind of clinical signs do we see? This is a lot of times what you're going to be looking at as um, anybody who's doing triage, right? Or talking, the receptionist, you guys talking to the owners and they're starting to talk to you about these clinical signs. You're like, oh, this sounds a lot like a pyometra. We should have them come in immediately. Honestly, for any female dog or cat that comes in that is not spayed, I do always check them for a pyometra. So I'm always looking at them on ultrasound to see if there's potentially a pyometra that's there. But in general, there's two types of pyometras. One is called an open pyometra, and one is called a closed pyometra. So an open pyometra, what that means is the cervix is open. If the cervix is open, we have basically this exit site for all of that pus to kind of start leaking out. It's usually the lesser of two evils because if we have pus leaking out, there's not as much that's in that bloodstream, right? Usually you'll see a moderate amount of pus coming out of the vagina. And that's usually what some of like the very first clinical sign that people will notice at home when they have an open pyometra. They're like, there's just like a bunch of white or yellow discharge that's coming out of their vagina. So they'll kind of know at that point, like, oh, that sounds like we need to get them in because it could be a pyometra. The clinical signs are usually that they're lethargic. They're not really eating as great. Like they're pretty, probably still eating a bit, but not eating as great and sometimes vomiting. but. You know, in all honesty, a lot of times people don't even notice that their dog is maybe a little bit slower. They'll usually notice that that pus coming from from the vagina first. Now, a closed pyometra is quite deadly. So, a closed pyometra means that the cervix is closed; it's keeping all of that pus inside of that uterus. So, this is the worst of the two. These dogs are usually much much sicker because that pus doesn't have anywhere to go besides going in the bloodstream, and also filling up that uterus to be quite full. I'm sure like some of the technicians have seen, like you can have these gigantic uteruses that look like they're about to burst because they're filled with so much pus. That's what happens in these closed pyometras. The clinical signs of these guys is usually they have a fever... They are really lethargic. They're vomiting, not wanting to eat, drinking tons and tons of water and peeing tons as well. So a lot of times people will come in because they think it sounds like the dog's having a urinary tract infection because they're like, well, she's peeing all the time. So I think it's a urinary tract infection, but ends up being a pyometra. They might come in because they say that their abdomen is really distended and you don't see any pus coming from the vagina or the vulva because there's it's not exiting there that cervix is keeping all of it in now in our open pyometra like lab work it's usually pretty normal because at that point it hasn't really crossed over into the bloodstream yet because all of it can kind of come out but in our closed pyometras we'll have either a really low white blood cell count because all of the was those white blood cells are going into the uterus to try to help fight it off or we'll have a really high white blood cell count because the body's making a ton of white blood cells to try to fight off this infection. You know, it's interesting because in a 2014 study, um, I'm going to mess up this name, by but by Jitp- Jitpian, they found that a really low white blood cell count actually increases the likelihood of that dog having a peritonitis, so inflammation of the inside of the abdomen. Or if there's been a rupture in that uterus and now there's pus leaking out into the abdomen, causing an inflammation as well. Those don't do as well. Those dogs don't do as well. We'll kind of talk about that later. But this definitely makes them very sick. They'll also usually have really elevated kidney values or even mildly elevated, just kind of depending. Most of the time that's from dehydration, but it also can be from that toxin going to the kidneys and creating a kidney failure. There was a dog, uh, I want to say a couple of weeks ago, that we had that was a pyometra and its kidney values were extremely high. It took days. I think it was four or five days before those kidney values came back down to normal. And we still don't know if they actually have kidney failure. That's going to have to be the general practitioners following up on that and rechecking their blood work later on to see if those kidney values are still High once that dog has been off of fluids, but that can happen. That can go into kidney failure because of these pyometras. Now, how do we diagnose a pyometra? Most of the technicians know, but you know, usually we're going to start out with radiographs. So we're going to do X rays to look to see if we have a large fluid-filled tube, kind of at the bottom of the abdomen. Now, the the hard part is is that we may not always see that. Because if this is a really small uterus or if it's an open pyometra, we can't really see that as well because that tube is not large enough to see. But sometimes we can, we can see those things. The other way to diagnose it is on ultrasound. You'll see that's pretty much the first thing that I always go to is ultrasound. You can see these tubular structures that fill with fluids and it looks like a Y. So the places that we'll be able to see it is usually like right under the bladder And then we can follow it up and then it divides right past the bladder. It divides and it goes to each kidney, essentially. You could have tubular structures that have just like tons and tons of fluids in them and they kind of twist all around and that could still be your uterus. But we also have to be a little bit careful because we have to look to see if there's layering of it because it could end up being actually the colon. That's happened to me before that... It looked like it was a pyritrea. It was on both sides of the, the body. So on the left side to where the left kidney was and on the right side where the right kidney was. But at the top, there was nothing there. Now, if this was a colon, you actually would see fluid going from the right side of the body up to the kidney, the right kidney. It goes across the body to the left kidney and then comes down back to where the bladder is. So that's what a normal like fluid-filled colon will look like because that's the structure of where it is. But on the one that I did, it only had it in the right side and the left side. So it looked a lot like a pyometra. And it was so dilated that I could not see that if there was layering or not. So we can definitely be fooled by those things. But in general, we're going to be looking to see, do we see this Y structure going up to the right and the left side of the kidneys? So how do we treat a pyometra now? we diagnosed it. What's our treatment? What are the pros and cons of each treatment? So number one treatment is going to be surgery, right? Called an ovariohysterectomy, hysterectomy, meaning we're taking out the ovaries, ovario, and then hysterectomy means we're also taking out the body of the uterus. So taking the whole thing out. Essentially, this is like a really complicated spay. Um, spays are just like Not the same as well. Like I know, I've had a couple people who have asked, like, "Is spaying something like you just tie in the tubes, just like a person?" And that's not the case. So spays are actually we're taking out the entire uterus and we're taking out the ovaries as well, or at least most of the uterus. We'll get back to that later. Now there have been some different surgeries that have been done called ovarian sparing surgeries, meaning they're taking out the whole. Um, uterus, but leaving the ovaries because they think it might help with like the hormonal response, helping with things like certain types of cancers and different types of um, ligament problems and things. But for a pyometra, it's actually very important to take the ovaries as well because that's where all of the hormones are coming from. That's where the progesterone is coming from to help create these pyometras so if we took just the uterus, we're not. We, there's no physical way we can take the entire uterus because it's actually attached to the vagina. It's also really far under into the pelvis, so we can't take the entire thing. If we left the ovaries, then that would mean we have more progesterone being made to create something called a stump pyometra, which again we'll get to in a little bit. So for our pyometras, we do have to take the entire thing, as much of the uterus as possible, and also those um, ovaries. We usually also give them antibiotics, because remember, this is a bacterial infection that's caused this. And it's pretty important because we usually need to do it before surgery, usually during surgery, and then usually after surgery as well. Because remember, we're going to leave a very small part of that that um, uterus. And we want to make sure all that infection is gone. You can also have it to where that infection leaks out into the abdomen. We have to flush it out really well. And then again, that becomes a concern for, is there bacteria in the abdomen? So they are usually on antibiotics for a while. And I usually send them home on antibiotics as well. They've done a study that kind of showed that if you just did antibiotics in a hospital, there were still about 50% of them that came back with a stump pyometra, so I always send them home with antibiotics as well. Pain medication is, is important as well. We want them to be eating because especially after we've taken out the uterus, yes, all of that bacteria has gone from the uterus, but we still have bacteria that's in our bloodstream, right? And now we have to combat about against that. And then also the fact that they've been cut open, you know, that's a pretty big surgery and it's going to be painful. So we want to make sure that they're on antibiotics and pain medications while they're in the hospital. Super important. And that's for like both open pyometras and closed pyometras that we usually suggest surgery for. You know, even if you can get all that, a lot of stuff out of with that open pyometra. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of times that you'll have um, bacteria that's just attached to the walls and it just it's not going to come out. So ideally, we want to do surgery for both open pyometras and closed pyometras. And then also ideally, potentially culturing that fluid that's in the pyometra. You know, remember when I said earlier, the most common one is going to be E. coli. So they have found that the usually the best antibiotic is going to be Unison for injections and then Clavamox for our medications to go home. But that's not always the case. It's not always an E. coli. So, if you can remember, as a technician who's doing the surgeries, to grab a culture and sensitivity uh, or a culture swab, so that we can swab the inside of that bacteria of the pus of the uterus, that's super helpful because then we can send that out and make sure that we are on the right antibiotic. We don't want them to have to go through all of this and then end up having a, you know, a, a stump pyometra because we didn't put them on the antibiotic. But a lot of times, I'm so focused on getting that uterus out then I'll forget to do the culture and sensitivity. But it is a really important thing to try to do if we can remember to do it. So what are the pros of doing an ovariohysterectomy? hysterectomy? Real quick, it's also called like an OVE or an OVH. Either of those are fine, but an ovariohysterectomy hysterectomy or a spay. So what are the pros of doing that when they have a pyometra? First of all, the infected uterus is now quickly resolved. We have taken it out, so the source of all of this is gone. So this isn't a something that's going to be, you know, for weeks and weeks that you have to treat them for. Really, it's just we take out the uterus, which takes like, you know, depending on how big it is, 20 minutes to an hour. We also limit the possibility of the disease reoccurring, because if there's no uterus and there's no ovaries to make more, make more um, progesterone... Then we're not going to get a recurring pyometra. Some of the cons are going to be that the surgery does sometimes have to be performed on a unstable pet. That definitely makes the risk of surgery a bit more complicated. And so a lot of times we're doing a lot of things to try to help stabilize them before surgery, if possible, and stabilizing them during surgery as well. There's also a risk of it already rupturing. So this is really friable, and if I go to put my hands in there and I just like lift up very slowly. Trying to get it out, I'm pretty gentle about it. But if there's already a part that's like really, really friable and my hand just like puts pressure in just the right area, it's going to rupture. And then we're going to have all this pus that goes into the abdomen. And that only happens usually with our closed pyometras. Because remember, our open ones, they don't have as much distension of their uterus. So it's usually not as big of a deal. But our closed ones are those guys who are really sick and also they're really bloated you know their their abdomen is really big so we definitely have a risk of that now i said that there were other ways right i know all we talk about usually is going to be surgery because that's the m- most common way the easiest way for us it's the fastest way to resolve it but there are alternatives treatments to this so the one i'm going to talk about is going to be prostaglandin injections so there was a protocol that was put together in the 1980s as a way to like spare reproduction. It's not actually approved in the US for dogs and cats. It's approved in um, the UK, but it can be done. Um, hormone injections, these are called prostaglandins that are injected. The injections actually cause the uterus to contract and expel pus. So it does the opposite of what our progesterone does. Progesterone stops contractions. We don't want that baby to be expelled out. Prostaglandins, like I said, do the opposite. It's contracting the uterus to try to expel out as much pus as possible. Because of this, it can only be done in an open pyometra. So if that cervix is open, it's okay to use this to try to help get all that stuff out. If we tried it on a closed pyometra, there is a huge risk that that uterus will essentially explode. So it will contract so much that it's going to create a a huge piece of tension in it, and it will pop, and all of that pus goes into the abdomen, and now the dog is very, very sick. So we don't want to use it on those guys. So the goal is to try to push out all of that pus, all of that lining, all of that dead tissue, all of those white blood cells. We're trying to get all of that bacteria, everything out of the uterus. Once that's done, though, really, the dog has to be bred on the next cycle and can like, conceive puppies. She doesn't necessarily have to bring the puppies to full term for it to be a problem, but she has to have puppies like to, to breed on this next cycle. Because if not, there's a 77% chance that this is going to occur again, immediately on that next heat cycle. So she does have to be bred. So we usually talk to people about like, if they're going to do this, this needs to be a breeding dog. Like you want to make sure that you're trying to save her uterus to breed because she has to be bred on this next cycle, which means they have to have all that lined up as well to know that she will be able to be bred. Now, the chances that she's going to be able to breed are a bit lower. So unfortunately, the uterus is now damaged. It has scar tissue on it. And she may not be able to carry a litter normally or be able to give birth normally. So, statistically, um, about 50 to 65% of them will be able to become pregnant and carry out the litter to term. Uh, I believe that if I remember correctly, it was about 75% of them that can get pregnant afterwards, but only 50 to 65% of them will carry them all the way to term. It is also recommended that they are hospitalized for about a week to help with like the pain and discomfort of this. And then also doing a culture and sensitivity because again, we want to be able to like check to see what kind of bacteria this is and which antibiotics it's sensitive to so that we know that we have them on the correct antibiotic. This does have a lot of side effects and this is going to be why we want them in the hospital. So it can cause them to be restless, anxiety, panting, um, salivating quite a lot. So hypersalivation is what that's called pacing, tachycardia, or a high heart rate, vomiting, increased urination, and increased defecation. There's also, like, a lot of this is due to pain. This is really painful for them. Anybody who's had a baby, you probably had to be put on a Pitocin um, drip afterwards to, like, expel all the stuff, like, all the placenta, right? And I'm sure you probably remember it was painful, like, all those contractions, we're painful. That's essentially what she's going through. And so ideally, we want them in the hospital while we're doing this and not at home. But I have done it for people who want to do it at home. I just give them really good pain medication. I tell them like there are definitely risks to doing this. Uh, remember, the reason why all this as well is because it not only works on the uterus, it works on lots of other things as well. The heart, it works on the salivary glands. So it's not just going to be just on the uterus that this works. I also warn them that if the dog is having severe respiratory distress, if it's really ataxic or wobbly, or if they're having muscle tremors after the injection, then that pet should be hospitalized because that pet is essentially going into shock. So those are really big things for them to watch out for. Some of the pros to doing these injections is they can possibly have future pregnancies, so they can produce more puppies if that's what they want to do. You're also avoiding surgery, so you don't have to worry about the cost of that. But the cons are that pyometra is likely to reoccur. It may not occur on that next heat cycle or the next one, but let's say you know three heat cycles down, somebody doesn't breed her. It is likely going to be that that pyometra is going to occur again. So if they do this route, I tell them if you get to a point where you do not want puppies, as soon as those puppies are weaned, immediately have surgery done, have her spayed, because that pyometra is going to happen again. It does take a longer period of time for this to resolve, so not like a twenty-minute surgery and then a you know one to two days in the hospital. This is like one to two weeks, and even some of them can be three to four weeks before it even resolves. There's a possibility that that uterus can rupture and cause a septic peritonitis. So we talked about how it's contracting the uterus, and if that cervix goes from open to closed you can definitely have that uterus rupture and now we have all that pus in the abdomen causing aseptic peritonitis like i said breeding has to occur during the next heat cycle and then this can cause pregnancy loss in people so i always tell people like if you like if there is somebody pregnant in the house they cannot handle this this uh, medication cuz it will cause them to lose their pregnancy it also causes loss of pregnancy in dogs and cats. So it's also important to know that that dog or cat is not pregnant first when we, before we do it. So if somebody's just like, well, there's fluid from her vulva and she has a large abdomen, we can't just put them immediately on it. We have to make sure that they're not pregnant first. Otherwise, all of those puppies and kittens will be aborted. And then the other thing is it doesn't always work. So you may have put in three to four weeks of you know this medication putting her three to four weeks of contractions, and after all that, it doesn't work, and they have to do surgery anyways. Uh, That three to four weeks usually comes into, by the way, because the fact that a lot of times if we don't have them on the right antibiotic. For general practitioners, all of our GP techs, we do want them to be rechecked in about two weeks to make sure that this is completely resolved, because if not, again, she's just immediately going to have a pyometra So they have to have it rechecked and make sure that there's no signs of infection um, when you're doing the rechecks. Because if she does have signs of an infection, there is pus coming out, then we have to do the prostaglandins for longer. All right. So now we're going to talk a little bit about cats. I've mostly kind of talked about dogs, touched on cats a little bit, but like, why do we see it less in cats? So the reason is because cats actually require copulation to stimulate them to ovulate. So they have to have intercourse to make their their ovaries ovulate. Remember, you have to have progesterone in order to make the uterus ready to go to have kittens. So they cannot have this pyometria occur the first time that they get out of the house and they copulate because no no progesterone has been made. It's not until after that that we actually can get a pyometra. So as soon as the cat ovulates, then it produces the progesterone, which then produces that enlarged uterus, makes more fluid for the uterus, and stops the contraction of the uterus. So they have to mate first, and then after that, that's when they can have their uterus become enlarged. So that's why it's not as common. Dogs, they don't, like they're just on a time cycle. They don't have to have copulation first. In cats, it can also be really difficult to tell if they have a pyometra. Remember cats hide things really well. So they will be eating just fine. They'll be grooming themselves. It will not seem as if they actually have anything wrong with them until you have seen like either like fluid from like discharge from there, which again is hard because if the cat does have discharge from the vagina or the vulva, it usually is very good about cleaning it. So you're not always going to see that discharge, but they're usually, like I said, they're usually eating, grooming themselves. It's not until their abdomen becomes really distended and they're like lateral that people realize that there's something wrong and then bring them in because cats are just so good at hiding in. And even then, when people see that their abdomen is bloated, most people think that they're pregnant. So they don't really think anything of it until they're like super sick. And then they think it's because there's a lost pregnancy or something. So when they come in and they say, well, it's pregnant and it's not eating and not doing well, then immediately we should be checking to see if it's a pyometra or are there actually kittens in there? Because I'd say the majority of the time, it's probably going to be a pyometra. And then with cats, unfortunately, because the fact that they By the time they come in, that's when they're really sick. That also makes them a lot more unstable for surgery. So that makes it much harder for us to be able to do the surgery and stabilize them prior to surgery. But the diagnosis is the same x rays, ultrasound. Treatment options are the same, technically. You know, you can do a surgery or you can potentially do the prostaglandins if it is a breeding cat. But again, it's not like, it's not technically on-label for us to use it, and it has all the same risks as the dogs do, like I talked about. Now let's talk about stump pyometras real quick. So what is a stump? So think of this as like the stump of a tree. You know, if you have a big tree that's that's there and you cut down the tree, you still have that stump that's there, because even if you took a chainsaw to it, you can't get underground to all of those roots, Right. So it's kind of like with the uterus, like there's part of it inside the pelvis that we just cannot get to. So there's always going to be some sort of stump that's left there in the abdomen. So the pet might have been spayed. Let's say they were spayed when they were six months old. It also means that it's really hard to get to the ovaries. And there can be pieces of ovaries that are left, not on purpose. Obviously, this is an accident when this happens but let's say there's a piece of the uterus or sorry piece of the ovary that was left in the abdomen that little piece is going to start producing more progesterone which then is going to act on whatever remaining stump there is of that uterus and then now there's a pyometra in that little stump so we call it a stump pyometra this can also happen from other things so it's not necessarily just that there was an error on the surgeon's part It could be that there's a microscopic piece that's left in there. Like literally, even if we went back in there, we could not see it. Those kind of things are called an ovarian remnant syndrome when there's like these little teeny tiny pieces left. It can also be that there's a piece of ovary that was in there that wasn't in where it normally should be. Normally they live by the kidneys, but let's say it was in the middle of the abdomen because you had the two normal ovaries, and then there was some genetic problem that occurred. And then you have this weird little piece somewhere else. We're not looking for ovaries somewhere else because that's pretty rare that that happens. But it can happen and then can cause a stump pyometra. The other thing that can cause this as well is that there's there's no progesterone that's being produced by the cat. There's no ovary to be able to produce it. It's actually from the human. So humans will have a lot of estrogen-containing products to them, especially if they're going through menopause. There's a lot of lotions and stuff that you can use, but if let's say the cat licks off that lotion, or you're cuddling with your cat, they're cuddling with their cat, and it's next to the body part, like that they're that they're touching that body part that the lotion is used. They absorb that into their skin, and now it's not necessarily that we have to estrogen that's causing the problem, but estrogen helps make more progesterone, which then causes this to happen again. So they can now have a stump pyometra because of an exogenous product. So that's going to be meaning that it's from something else besides their body. It means it's coming from that person that they're cuddling. Clinical signs are all pretty much the same as when you have a regular pyometra. It can be open so that we have pus coming out. It can be closed, so it's just they just seem really sick, but pretty much just the same. Diagnosis for this one is a little bit harder. You can try to do x-rays and see if you can see a little fluid-filled stump underneath the bladder. You can do ultrasound and see if you can see a little fluid-filled stump under it that way. There's also hormone testing, so testing for progesterone to see if the progesterone is really high. That one's a little bit harder because if you're really sick and we have to send out this testing... Um, does it take a while for it to come back? And then what do I do? Do we just go to surgery and see if it's in there? You know, so hormone testing is great to be able to say, yes, there is a lot of progesterone being produced, but by the time that comes back, it's been days or a week before we know if that's true. And pie wheat just can't really sit for days or a week. As far as the treatments for this one, they're essentially the same. One option is surgery. So we can surgically remove that stump to be able to get all that rest of that bacteria out. And then the bigger problem is trying to find where the rest of that ovary is. Like I said, some of them are microscopic. So it might be that we get in there, we cannot find anything. So we just biopsy the area that it's in, attempting to see if we can find where this ovary is. So we send it out to the lab. They let us know if there's any signs of some sort of ovary that's in there. And then sometimes too, we have to send them to a surgeon because we just may not be able to find it. Like they're just, like I said, they're so tiny. Like it's so hard to be able to find that sometimes they have to be sent somewhere else to be able to do it. All right, let's talk about some of the things that are frequently asked about this. Uh, People will ask, um, are there other things that can cause pyobetras? They're like, I didn't, I don't have any estrogen lotions. My dog is really clean. Is there anything else that could potentially do that? Sure they're just not as common. So people who are breeders, they may give these long-lasting progesterone medications to try to help delay or suppress them going into heat until they want them to, like until they have their stud ready to go. So it could be that we have medications that are causing this. It causes that uterus to swell and stuff, so it might delay that. It could be that we have a um, it could be that they'd already had puppies and then, or kittens, and then they'll have something secondary to having them. So it's called a postpartum metritis, meaning that there's inflammation in the uterus after having puppies or kittens. There can be bacteria that's left in there. And again, we can have the pymetra that occurs. It could be due to administering estrogens. Again, estrogen isn't going to be the one that causes this, but it promotes progesterone. And it's usually given to prevent pregnancies. Um, It's also known as the mismate shot. I didn't know about this, but apparently that is a thing that some breeders will do is the mismate shot, which is basically giving them estrogen, which is, again, making more progesterone, which is causing this problem. Another question is, can pets die from this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So those toxins, they go everywhere, right? And if there's a lot of them and a lot of bacteria, it causes them to go into shock and they die from it. Um, shock pretty much affects every body system. And it's not good. Like a lot of it is trying to give them tons of fluids, tons of vet starch, so something to help increase their uh, blood pressure, having to give them other medications to increase their blood pressure, lots and lots of antibiotics, and then we just hope that we've done enough to keep them stable during surgery until we can get out of it, and also to help keep them stable after surgery. These are the animals that we do not do any of that prostaglandin on. If they are that sick, they are not going to get better just from those prostaglandins. This happens a lot more frequently, again, like in our closed pyometras and it does in our open pyometras. And sometimes, too, people miss it, and then it makes it much harder to diagnose when they're closed pyometras because they seem like they're really sick, like their kidney values are elevated, but it ends up being not that they have a kidney problem, it ends up being that they have a pyometra. Another question is can can the owners wait on surgery? Well, that depends. If it's an open pyometra, I'm a little more relaxed about it. Like so sometimes I'll give them antibiotics to try to help with that bacteria that's in the bloodstream. But they could potentially wait for the next day when their regular vet opens. But I always warn them, you know, there's a chance your regular vet will not take you. They already have a full day booked and they may not be able to take an emergency surgery. So if that's the case, they got to come back. And then for me on overnights, I usually tell them to please get your funds together if that's the case, because you want to walk in with those funds. Not that you walk back in, say you want to do surgery, and now we can't do surgery again, because we don't have the funds for it. So it's super important that if they want to go somewhere, the regular bed, that if they cannot get in, that they immediately start going through all of those resources to try to get those funds. Again, clothes are a lot sicker. So usually I'm going to tell them not to wait on surgery for the closed pyometras. That is really dangerous. They need immediate care. They need to have surgery as soon as we can possibly get them in there. So I don't recommend that they wait if it's a closed pyometra. Another question is, well, if it's an infection, why can't we just use the antibiotics just alone? If this is an infection due to bacteria, antibiotics should cure it, right? Well, there's a couple of things to that. So one, there's so much pus in that uterus. There is no way that antibiotics alone, given IV or given by mouth, can penetrate through all of that infection. There's just no way. It's like having a giant abscess. There's no way that medication, enough medication can get through to kill all that bacteria. The other thing is, is do I know that it's on the right antibiotics? Not a hundred percent, not unless I send out that culture, which grows the bacteria. And then they tell us what kind of antibiotic it is. So I might put them on an antibiotic and it may be the wrong antibiotic. So no, we cannot just give antibiotics alone. That's just one of the many things we have to use to be able to fix the problem. A lot of people will ask too, how can I prevent this? Like for the next time, what do I do to prevent this? The only way to actually prevent this is to spay them, right? You can't get rid of the bacteria that's in their vagina. If you did that, then you'd have yeast infections and that's not going to be good. And another problem is there's a lot of controversy behind spaying right now, right? Right. So there have many studies that have been done to try to figure out what is the optimal age of spaying, what are the benefits of, of spaying early versus the benefits of not spaying at all, does behavior come into a play if you spay early or do not spay them. Um, there's a lot of debate. There are a lot of studies for both sides to not spay them at all, and there's a lot of studies to spay them and spay them early. The other thing too is that even though you spay them, they could still get a stump pie nature, right? It's rare, like how many times have you actually seen a stump pyometra come through here? It's been pretty rare, but it's still possible. Like they still can get a stump pyometra, so it's not 100% even if we do the surgery. But truly, like the only way to prevent a pyometra is going to be to spay them. Because even other people have said, well, you just have to breed them every cycle. Well, even if you do that, they still can get a postpartum metritis, which is going to lead to a pyometra as well. Other people ask too, If this is just a spay, why is it so expensive? Well, it's not just a spay. It is the same procedure as a spay, but the pet is often much sicker. They're not walking into that surgery suite being completely healthy. They're walking in there being sick in the first place. Like, that's why that person brought that pet in. They were sick, not because they just wanted to get a checkup on them, you know, like they're usually sick. So it's a lot more complicated because the fact that we have to stabilize them beforehand, stabilize them during, and stabilize them after the surgery. Whereas a spay, they usually go in healthy. They are healthy during surgery and they come out healthy, right? So there's not as much that's going to be to a spay. Another question is, can my dog or cat have a litter after surgery from a pyometra? That is a no. No. So as soon as we take out the uterus, there's nowhere for that baby to live. There's nowhere for the sperm to go. So no, they're not able to have puppies or kittens after the surgery. And then I have also gotten after, I'm not sure why, but after I've talked to people about the pyometria surgery, um, I've had a lot of people who have asked, well, do all veterinarians spay their their pets? And we all know the answer to that is no. Uh, there's definitely people at work who do not spay their pets. Or neuter their pets. I did spay and neuter all of mine. I did it at a time period that was going to decrease the risk of each thing, though. There's this is a whole nother topic, but you know, there's definitely like risks of mammary gland tumors, there's risks of ovarian cancers, there's risks of um, them having ligament problems, there's risks of osteosarcoma, so cancers, risks of cancers and other types of dogs. So I basically looked at each one of my pets individually, and I decided when the best time was going to be to spay or neuter them. You know, when was it going to be the least risk for as many things as possible? And that's when I chose to spay and neuter mine. But that's something for all the vets to talk to their clients about. It's not something that we need to talk to them about as far as technicians and receptionists. Uh, but just so that you kind of know like where everybody kind of stands, like why why there are such big debates right now about it. All right. That was a lot on our pyometra. I hope that you did learn some new things there because I have a feeling that people did learn about things like prostaglandins But I wanted to talk about one other treatment type. And so, this is actually going for why we do not carry Union Bio. So, Union Bio has been used in alternative medicine for many things. We had typically used it for bleeding disorders, so we can just make sure that they hopefully stop bleeding, but it can be used for other things as well. So, one of the things is pyometras. You can use it for a pyometra. And there's actually a lady on YouTube, and I was a little horrified by it, but there's a lady on YouTube. And she says that she's had five dogs so far that have all had pyometras and she's used Unibio each time and each time it has cured it. And that is definitely a possibility. I have no idea, but um, yeah, five dogs. That's a lot. That's pretty crazy. But anyways, so she had five dogs with pyometras. They all had Unibio cured the disease, cured the pyometra, right? So why don't we use Unibio anymore? So there is a big debate right now. There's a lot of controversy in veterinary medicine because the people who make Unibio, they suddenly traded a huge amount of pangolid scales. If you don't know what a pangolid is, it looks like an anteater with scales. So it looks like it's like a cross between like a reptile and an anteater but they're really scaly and their name actually means scaly anteater, but super scaly. And those scales are ground down into this powder and are used for different types of alternative medicines. But the thing is with the pangolids, there's eight different species of them. And unfortunately, almost all of them are extinct or going to become extinct. They're all on that watch list for becoming extinct. So they are protected And so people are not supposed to be able to capture them. And it's really easy to capture them because their defensive mechanism is to roll up in a ball. So when they roll up in a ball, people, poachers, just grab them and take them. Like they don't fight them or anything. They just grab them in their their little ball and take them. But now we have a moral dilemma. Do we use a medication that has pangolin scales from animals that are almost extinct? Or, and then that means that if we use them, then we might be able to save pets. May or may not. I will say that as well. That there's no like concrete evidence that says that this does work. Or do we not use pangolin scales or not use medication that could potentially have pangolin scales? And that means that we might not have that last option for pets. So our hospital has chosen not to use Unibio. As far as there's... As the data has been told so far from like these people who are researching it, no pingolin scales are being used in the Union Bio that's made for the U.S. because in the U.S. you have to have it written down every single ingredient that goes into it. But that company still has tons of pangolin scales. So what were they used for in the first place? If they're from China, you do not have to write down the ingredients that are in each thing, so you do not have to write down penguin scales for Unibao. So, as far as we know, there could be penguin scales in Unibao that's made in China for for China specifically. So, again, like it's really a big debate right now. It's like some people do use Unibao still because they're like, well, there's no penguin scales in my Unibao, so I, it doesn't matter to me. And there are other vets who say, well, I don't want any part of this because I don't want anybody to, you know, be pushing an animal into extinction. That's against what we believe in. We believe in helping animals, not hurting animals, and that would definitely hurt all the pangolids. So that is why it is an interesting fact that you could use other types of alternative medicines and you will see that and people will We'll um, Google all that. Which type of medications can you use for, you know, for a pyometra? But it's important to know like why we don't use it. And I've seen other like interesting things like cumin and I don't even know. There was like all sorts of things that you put together and you use it for that. Um, but But there's been like not a lot of scientific data on that versus like there had been successful ones for Unibio. So I just want you to kind of know about it. So my fun story really quickly, this last weekend, we celebrated my daughter's seventh birthday. She wanted to go to a saltwater pool that's warm because if you've ever seen Abigail, she's like a little stick and she has no body fat on her and she gets very cold very easily. So we took her to this saltwater pool that's very warm. She was like able to swim for like five hours without turning blue. It was so nice And then she actually like was starting to learn how to swim, which was awesome. Um, She's never before like tried. She does with her swimming, like little floaties on. She would go and like swim all around the pool, had no problem swimming with the floaties, but she's getting bigger now. Seven years old is big enough to be able to start swimming. Like I was swimming, I think by the time I was two or three. So I was like, you know, you can't use your swimming, your floaties anymore. You're too big. There's just not even your size anymore. So she actually did like starting to learn how to swim. That was great. And I don't know if I mentioned this on a previous podcast or not before, but for like Oren, he didn't learn how to swim until last year when he was nine years old. So the way that I got him to swim is again, we're like, look, you're too big for floaties. Like you have to learn how to swim. So you either stay in the, the shallow wind or you learn how to swim. And he was very against swimming. He would not swim for swim instructors. He would not swim when I would try to bribe him, like literally nothing. He would not do it. And so this last year when I was like, well, all of your friends are going to know how to swim and you're not going to know how to swim. So this is up to you, buddy. Like you either got to let me try to teach you or you don't learn and then you're never going to learn how to swim. And so this was at this exact same pool, this same pool that we went to this last last weekend with my daughter. And my son was like, well, then I'm just going to learn how to swim. And I was like, well, it's not like that easy. You don't just like magically say, well, I'm going to learn how to swim. And then you know how to swim. And you know what he did? He started swimming. (laughs) He literally like dove underwater and started swimming and paddling. And he was doing like all the things to swim and A week later, we went to the YMCA where he even passed the test that you have to take in order to be able to swim on your own without a parent. Like you had to like tread water for two minutes. You had to swim back and forth across the thing multiple times. Like literally literally he had swam for two days in this pool, the saltwater pool, went to the YMCA a week later without swimming in that week period of time, started swimming at the YMCA and was able to pass a test saying that he could swim. I just... I was like, what? that doesn't happen. You can't just like read about swimming or think you're just going to learn how to swim and then just swim. But anyways, those are my kids. All right, guys. Again, as always, if you have any questions, you want me to do a topic, please let me know. And I'm more than happy to do it. Or if you want to be on the podcast, I'm more than happy to connect with you guys on that as well. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great week.